Father, we come to you as your people, needy, weak, frail. This world is indeed filled with devils who threaten to undo us. And yet we are confident in what we just sang, that one little word will fell Satan, will destroy him and all his works. You have given us that word in the incarnate word, your son Jesus. And you have shown us Christ in your written word. And now I pray that as we come to your word, that we would come with hearts longing to see Jesus. Hearts hungry to see Christ and all his glory. To be drawn in to know him more. To be drawn in to trust him more. To be drawn in to the magnificent reality of the incarnate son. I pray that you would soften our hearts to your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Hearts to believe. And I pray that that confidence that we gain from beholding your son. Will sustain our faith. In the midst of trials and tribulations. As we await his return. Would you accomplish what only you can do by your spirit? Would you strengthen us as we seek to behold Christ in his word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, friends. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We are continuing our journey through the gospel of Matthew, and we came to the end last week. Of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the most famous sermons ever given. Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain. Where we saw him establish the new criteria for kingdom righteousness. The kind of righteousness that brings the very redemptive work that his kingdom is meant to bring. And his kingdom consists in. As Jesus transitions from that sermon, Matthew gives us a clue about what to expect next. We're going to be spending time in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9 over the next couple weeks. And what we'll see as we work our way through these stories is that there's 10 miracle stories in Matthew chapter 8 through 9. And sometimes when we see Miracle stories in the Gospels, our eyes can kind of glaze over and they can all start to kind of sound the same. They're still miraculous, they're still exciting, but, we, but we're trying to p- figure out how do these connect to the broader story? What do these show and reveal about Christ? Matthew helps us out by giving us a hint about what to expect in chapter 7 as he ends this sermon. Chapter 7, verses 20, uh, 27 or excuse me, 28 and 29, say this. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There's a common theme that Matthew sets up here to all of these miracle stories, and that is the theme of authority. That word appears in Matthew something like seven times, and five of those uses are in these chapters. This is a major uniting theme of all of these miracle stories that Jesus has authority over various areas of life. We'll see this week that Jesus has authority to heal. 
We'll see next week that Jesus has authority over all of creation. We'll see the week after that Jesus has authority to forgive sins and call sinners to follow him. And we'll see in the last section of Matthew 9 that Jesus has authority to show compassion on the helpless. Jesus has authority over every area of life as a king bringing his kingdom. And this theme permeates these chapters. There's a, there's a continuation of what we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' authoritative words. The things he said that people were amazed because he spoke as one with authority. And now we move into Jesus doing things. They're his authoritative works. These ten miracles. This is an important Subject for us to think about, not just because this is the theme of these chapters, but because we live in a society where authority is a touchy subject. We live in a society where authority is a touchy subject, authority being the power to rule or command or judge. We know this because we tend to chafe under such authority, right? Whether that authority is legitimate or illegitimate, we do not like to be under authority. This is easy to see in children. It's even easier to see in teenagers. It's even easy to see in our adult lives as we rebel and reject the authority, whether legitimate or illegitimate, of governments, of bosses, of churches. We do not like to be under authority. It's understandable if we think about the experiences of those under authority in our society. Because we live in a society filled with sinful people, Those in authority often use their authority to abuse, to hurt, to seek their own good, their own gain. And so we tend to think in our society that all authority must be evil, must be wicked, must be something to be rejected. Right? Authority is a bad thing in the eyes of many in our society and often in our own eyes as we're discipled by our society. In Matthew 8 chapter one, or excuse me in Matthew 8 verses 1 through 17 we'll see that Jesus authority to heal comes from his authority over our bodies Living in the culture we do the idea of anyone but yourself in authority over your body is frightening Right That's why we have slogans like my body, my choice, whether it has to do with abortion or vaccinations the same thing we do not want someone to have authority over our bodies. And yet we see Jesus with this authority. And we're struck with the question, is this a good thing? Or ought we be scared by it? We know that Jesus is good. And so it is good that he has authority. And we can see this in the key question that I want us to think about as we go through Matthew 8 and 9. And that is, how does Jesus use the authority that he has? What does Jesus do with the authority? Authority or the power to command is not a bad thing in and of itself. We think it's bad because of how it's used. And it's often used in evil ways. But how does Jesus use this authority? As we go through Matthew 8 and 9, we will see a beautiful portrait of one who has all authority. One who can even command storms. And yet who uses that authority to tenderly draw near the hurting and to help them. And we're going to see that, first of all, in our text today. As Jesus uses his authority to heal and to restore. 
So with that in mind, let's hear the text this morning, Matthew 8, verses 1 to 17. I'm going to read it for us. Would you follow along with me? When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes and to another, come and he comes and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. As we read through that, I imagine you might have noticed that there's these different scene changes, right? In verse 1, when he came down from the mountain. Verse 5, when he entered Capernaum. Verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house. As these scenes change, there's a different healing taking place. And it's revealing a composite picture of how Jesus uses this authority. And so we're going to look at each of those pictures One by one, starting with the first picture in verses 1 through 4. Notice the setting in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Jesus had just preached the most epic sermon in all of history. And many heard and believed and responded in faith. And they're coming down the mountain, coming down from a mountaintop experience, so to speak. Excited and filled with fervor to go and do the things that Jesus has called them to do. And as this crowd is coming down the mountain, what happens? Behold, verse 2, behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. It is hard for us to grasp how dramatic Of a crisis this was. A leper coming to Jesus and asking to be made clean. This is a huge deal that a leper would approach. 
Listen, you don't have to necessarily turn there, but just listen to the words of Leviticus that talks about how lepers were supposed to act and supposed to be treated in Israel. Leviticus 13 has the rules for lepers. And Leviticus 13, 45 to 46 says this. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. To be struck with leprosy during the time of Jesus was a sentence to be left alone, to live outside of the camp, to be completely isolated from everyone and everything that relates to God and his people. The issue wasn't that the leper himself was that contagious, although he was. Leprosy would be bad to contract. There was disfigurement. It was gross. The issue was what the leper cried out. Unclean, unclean. The issue was that leprosy made someone unclean, which is a ritual category that says they are unfit to be in the presence of the holy God. So someone that was unclean could not go to the very center of relating to God, the temple, and could not participate In relating to their creator God. They were cut off because of their uncleanness. Not only were they cut off because of their uncleanness. And separated from God and his people. But this uncleanness was contagious. There are so many rules about clean and unclean in the Old Testament. Because uncleanness was massively contagious. If you touched something unclean you became unclean. It spread, and so Jews, understandably not wanting to be cut off from God, avoided it at all costs. The conventional wisdom and the practice said that when a leper comes and stands before you in the path, you run the other way. And here is Jesus and his disciples coming down the mountain, and comes this leper kneeling before him and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Not just healed from leprosy, but clean. What is the teacher going to do? The disciples would have been standing around wondering, what on earth is he going to do? Notice what he does in verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Jesus... Doesn't run the other way, but instead he reaches out and touches this leper. That would have been like you or I touching a rotting corpse. It would have made a regular Jew gag in his mouth. Touching a leper. And Jesus reaches out and touches this man. And says, I will be clean. And what happens? Jesus is not made unclean. Immediately, it says, his leprosy was cleansed. That means his leprosy was healed, but that also means his leprosy was cleansed. There was no more trace of it. He was now ritually clean. This is why Jesus tells him, go to the priest, make the offering that Moses commanded. He would not have been able to do that 
if he had remaining uncleanness. He would have been barred from the temple. And yet here he is made clean. His leprosy and his uncleanness is not contagious to Jesus. Jesus' holiness is contagious to him. All it takes is a touch. And he's clean. Notice what the leper asks Jesus. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Not if you can, but if you are willing. The leper came in faith, recognizing Jesus' authority. And Jesus, having authority over the body, is able to make the body clean. If he is willing. And he says, I am, be clean. The leper is restored in his body. He is healed. And he's also restored in his soul. His fellowship with his people is restored. No longer does he live outside the camp. No longer does he have to live alone. He's able to be with God's people and able to worship God in his temple. All because Jesus used his authority to restore him. Look at the next story that happens. Verse 5, Jesus moves on from there. When he'd entered Capernaum, the city, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Here we have another crisis of a different kind. Now it's not a leper who is unclean, threatening to make Jesus unclean. But it's a centurion. Centurions were Roman soldiers. They were commanders of groups of Roman soldiers. And as such, they were Gentiles. An unclean people. Not part of the Jewish people. Not only that, but he was a member of the occupying army. In other words, he was a mortal enemy of the Jews. And so here's Jesus and his Jewish disciples and this centurion, a Gentile and a mortal enemy, comes up to him. And says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He tells him the problem. There must have been tremendous pressure from those around Jesus to respond with some kind of harsh remark. Or to dismiss him altogether, to ignore him maybe, to run away maybe because you don't want to be arrested for whatever they might find default with you. And yet look at how Jesus answers. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. I will come and heal him. Jesus is willing not only to heal this man, but to actually go to him and heal him. This man is paralyzed, lying at home, suffering. And Jesus is willing to go to him, which, guess what, meant going into a Jewish household. Or, I mean, excuse me, a Gentile household. Going into a place of uncleanness. Going into a place that was avoided at all costs by the Jewish people. Going into the home of his enemy and healing his enemy's servant. Jesus is willing to go. And yet we have this wonderful twist that shows us so much more than merely that Jesus was willing to go. 
Look at verse 8, how the centurion responds. The centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doesn't. With this wonderful twist of the centurion asking Jesus not to come, but to just say the word. We have this beautiful explanation of the power of Jesus' authority to heal. All that it requires for him is that he says a word. And the centurion says, I know that your authority is like that because that's what I see in nature of my own authority. I say, do, and someone does. And if you really have the kind of authority that I believe you do, then if you say do, it will happen. Jesus, if you really have authority over this paralyzed servant's body, then if you say rise and get up, he'll get up. He'll be healed. Jesus can heal with the word and from a distance. And this is dramatic in this day and age. This is dramatic just that he heals. But it's even doubly so that he does it from a distance because many of the healers of the age would do complex incantations and maybe put on some plants and those kind of things and, and, and do things physically to manipulate the body. And here is Jesus with such authority that he can heal from a word without even being heal with a word without even being in the same room. And the centurion believes this. We get to see Jesus' authority and the reality. And we get to see the faith of the centurion held up as an example. Jesus marvels, notice in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus emphasizes the centurion's faith. The centurion comes believing that Jesus is able to do this. Just like the leper did, right? Not coming, Jesus, if you can, but Jesus, if you will. Coming in faith, bringing the need and believing that by asking, if Jesus wills, he will restore. Both the leper and the centurion are models of faith. The kind of faith that Jesus just called for in his sermon. Right? We saw that as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, that God himself, through his son Jesus, is asking us, telling us, come and ask. Come and ask because he is willing to help. And Jesus responds just like he said his father would. Right? He tells us that his father knows how to give good gifts to his children. And what does Jesus do? When people come and ask him, he gives good gifts. He shows kindness and compassion. He shows his willingness to use his authority for their good, to restore them. Chapter 8, as we see Jesus doing this, is the Sermon on the Mount in motion. It's being enacted right here. The faith of these people, the response of Jesus, is exactly what he's calling for in his sermon. And here we have it in action. Because of this, the servant is restored. Verse 13 says, Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Restored in body, but also restored in soul. Why why restored in soul? 
I think this story is in here to highlight this distinction of Gentile, right? That's why Jesus talks about the faith that he's seen in Israel versus the faith that he sees from this centurion. And when he says that many will come from east and west and recline at table, he's talking about the ingathering of the Gentiles, like we read about in Romans this morning in our, in our call to confession. And when he says many of the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, he's talking about faithless Israel. Here what Jesus is doing is he's not only restoring the physical well-being of that servant, but he's bringing to that servant the blessings of belonging to the king. Blessings that he would have had no access to as a Gentile. He was cut off just like the leper was cut off from God. Far from God. And here Jesus uses his authority to bring that blessing near. To draw near and to restore this servant. The scene changes again to Peter's house in verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. It's really easy to read these verses relatively quickly and miss a vital, vital point. And that's at the beginning of verse 15. He touched her hand and the fever left her. Remember what Jesus did to the leper. He reached out and touched him. Remember what Jesus did to the servant. He healed him with the word from afar. So does Jesus have to touch someone to heal them? The answer is no. The servant's healing shows us that Jesus can heal without touching. What that means then is when he touches someone, he means to. It's not because he has to. It's not because, like the other healers of his age, he has to somehow manipulate them and get them well. It's because Jesus is choosing to touch. It is important, then, to consider who Jesus touches. He touched the leper, and cleanliness flowed from him to the one that was unclean. Here he touches a woman, which might not seem like a big deal to us, but for Jews, pious male Jews of the day, it was really taboo. Because once a month, women were declared unclean. And they had to go through cleansing rituals. And so Jewish men just played it safe and didn't touch any women but their wives. And here Jesus draws near, not afraid of uncleanliness, but willing to touch the untouchable. This is so important, guys. Jesus uses his authority to touch the untouchables of his society. The ones that you and I would gag if we had to go near. We don't feel that way about women in general. And we don't encounter lepers. But there are those who we do not want to be around because of fear of them making us feel unclean somehow. And Jesus doesn't do that. He draws near. And he touches them, not with a touch of abuse, but with a touch of welcome. A touch that communicates, you are my friend. I want to welcome you into my family. I want to welcome you into fellowship. The kind of touch that happens between friends. Through this touch, Jesus restores and welcomes these people who are outsiders and far from God. At his touch, the mother-in-law is restored, both body and soul, right? Her fever leaves her, verse 15. 
And she rises and begins to serve him. She's enabled at his touch to be able to do the very thing a good Jewish woman of the day would want to do, which is be hospitable. She's restored body and soul. And then Matthew records for us later that evening in verse 16, an explosion of this kind of restoration. That evening they brought with him, uh, to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This just, it's hard to imagine what this must have been like. But as people heard and word spread that there's a teacher here and he heals with a word or with a touch. He casts out demons from people who are oppressed. He's able to help you. Imagine the kind of flood that happened. Imagine the amount of people coming sick and going away well. From this epicenter of this king explodes life, restoration, wholeness. Matthew says all of this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. What does this mean? How, how is this fulfilling what is spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 verse 4? There's a couple things it's not that I want us to know first. It's not that Jesus became sick on their behalf or unclean on their behalf. We might think that from the language of verse 17, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And that's one way that sometimes people think about this, is Jesus himself became sick on our behalf. But bear doesn't have to mean that. It means bore away, took away. It's also not by what we might call default. Or just, just because Jesus himself has come, now there's healing happening. And everyone is healed. Everyone here was healed, but there's plenty of people on earth that were not here present with Jesus, that he didn't heal. And we'll talk about why in a moment. It's not because illness and disease has been totally eradicated from this world. No, they're still a part of the sin-ravaged creation. Instead, if we look at the context of Isaiah 15, if we think of, or Isaiah 53, excuse me, if we think about it, Isaiah 53 is talking about God, through his servant, restoring his people. God, through his servant, restoring his people. It's the suffering servant of Isaiah 40 through 60 that is in view in Isaiah 53. In view as this person who took our illnesses and bore our diseases. In Isaiah 53, the kind of restoration that is talked about is the kind of restoration that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. It's the kind of restoration that brings What we might call shalom. Peace with God. Wholeness to God's people. The kind of experience that God's people were meant to have in Eden. And for it to just flow out of Eden. It's a restoration of that. A restoration of all things. And Matthew shows us that this restoration of all things. Is previewed. In healings is previewed in restoration of body and soul here on earth. That's what Matthew is doing as he grabs Isaiah 53 and says, what's happening here is fulfilling that. 
What he is saying is that as Jesus heals and uses his authority over the body to restore broken bodies, he is doing the work of the Messiah who's coming to restore God's people. He is doing this work, but this work does not mean that everyone is healed. That should linger in our minds because one way to misunderstand what's happening here is that this then purchases healing by default, connecting it to the cross, and now we can claim healing this side of the cross. That's a false understanding of what Jesus is doing here and what Matthew is talking about. Illness and disease are still part of our sin-ravaged world. They come from the fact that this world is broken by sin. They are a part of our life as long as we live in a world impacted by sin. As long as creation continues to groan under the burden of the curse, illness and disease will afflict us. Healing and wholeness, on the other hand, belong to the new creation. We see that in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, that the new creation doesn't have sickness and disease and death. But that it has wholeness, it has shalom. Healing then, as Matthew links it here, is meant to be a foretaste of that new creation. Not an end in itself. The fact that not everybody is healed should not be a problem with for us. Because guess what? Even the ones that are healed are still going to die. The leper still died. Right? The centurion's servant still died. Peter's mother-in-law still died. Everyone who had demons cast out of them and everyone who was healed still died. And if healing is the only end... Then it's got to happen again and again and again and again and again in perpetuity or you eventually will wear out and die. And the reality is that we all still die. That's why we hope in the resurrection. Healing is not an end in itself, but it is a foretaste of this new creation. Jesus came to defeat the greater enemy, which is death, and to bring the greater restoration, which is resurrection and life eternal. He promises us resurrection. We see the promise of renewed bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. We see the promise of a life freed from death in Revelation 21. We see the promise of a life without alienation from God in Revelation 22. When God dwells with man and there is no temple anymore because the whole city, the whole people of God is the temple of God. Healings are only meant to be a foretaste. I think they're a little bit like lightning. When you're in the dark and there's lightning off in the distance, you can't really see anything until all of a sudden a bolt of lightning smashes to the ground. Maybe thunder cracks and all of a sudden you can see everything around for a brief moment. And then the light goes away and it's dark again. And then another bolt hits and you can see everything more clearly and then it goes away. And that's what healings are like in the New Testament and today. Whenever God chooses to heal, he's doing it as a foretaste of that new creation. Not as an end in itself. He is glad to relieve suffering. Don't get me wrong. But that is not the main point. The main point of his healing acts is to give us a foretaste, a glimpse of that new creation to come. 
to cause us to long for it and to hope in it. So what we see from all of this as we take a step back and look at the picture as a whole and see these people restored body and soul as foretastes of this new creation, we see that what Jesus does with his authority over bodies, with his authority to heal, Jesus uses that authority to draw near to those who are far from God and to restore them. He uses that authority to draw near to those who are far from God and to restore them. What this means for those who are far from God, for those who feel like outcasts, like outsiders, like the untouchable, what we see here is that Jesus is not repulsed by you. Even if you feel like others might be, Jesus is not. He doesn't come near you holding his nose. He doesn't come near you reluctantly. He chooses to come near. Just like he chose to touch the leper and Peter's mother-in-law. He chooses to come near. And he responds to those who seek him with faith. Just like he did to the leper who said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He had faith and Jesus said, I'm willing, be clean. Jesus even comes to those unable to come to him like the man paralyzed in bed who couldn't come and ask Jesus to make him well. His master had to come on his behalf and Jesus healed him with the word. Drawing near to him with his words. So if you are far from God and you feel like you're living outside the camp, I want to encourage you to pray to Jesus. Ask him the same way the leper did. Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me whole. You can restore me. He is willing. There's no guarantee of healing here, however temporary it may be. But there is a guarantee because of the cross and resurrection that full restoration awaits all those who hope in Jesus. There is a guarantee that this Momentary affliction, as Peter puts it, will be feel light and momentary when compared to the eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. As Paul puts it, rather, in 2 Corinthians. Jesus has proven on the cross that he is able and he is willing. And so come to him. For all who are following Jesus, I think we have a couple things to think about in light of this text. One is that Jesus commands his followers to follow him. You might notice we're not covering that text today, but as we, as we get to verses 18 to 22, there's this call to follow Jesus. He, he commands people to go across the lake with him. And some bring up objections. His disciples follow him. Every time through this text of Matthew 8 through 9... There's these stories of miracles, and then there's a call to follow him. Jesus calls us to follow him, and one of the ways that we follow him is following in his care for those who are outcast, for those who society would deem untouchable, for those we'd be tempted uh, to run the other direction. We are called in imitation of our Savior to draw near and to seek to restore. We are privileged as God's people. As we do this, drawing near to those who are outcast. We are privileged as God's people to participate then in this foretaste of the new creation. Because we have been called to bring restoration to those who are hurting, to those who are outcast. 
As we do that, we are given the privilege of participating in that lightning bolt, a foretaste of the new creation. We bring water to a dry and thirsty land as Jesus' disciples. The most important thing, though, I think for us to follow Jesus, to remember, is that we ourselves were the outcasts and the untouchables. We read this story, I don't know about you, but I do, and I'm assuming most of you do because it's a pretty natural way to read this story. We read this story and we think of ourselves as the disciples coming down the mountain with Jesus. Or we think of ourselves as maybe the centurion who's coming on behalf of a friend. Or we think of ourselves as Peter. The reality is, friends, we were the leper. We are the one that came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The reality is that we were the man lying paralyzed in the bed, unable to even come. That Jesus, in his divine mercy, called out to. As Paul puts it, we were dead and Jesus made us alive. The reality is that we are the mother-in-law, maybe so feverish we're not even aware of our need for help. But we desperately need Jesus' healing touch. And he comes and draws near and touches us. And we rise up to serve him. Jesus comes to us outside of the camp. Hebrews 13 talks about him suffering outside of the camp. The very place for lepers. The very place you and I were and would be apart from him. He comes there. And he touches the untouchable. You and me. And he brings us into his family. If you follow Jesus, that's what he's done for you. That's the reality of who you are. And in light of all that he has done, you are called then to go and do the same. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus uses his authority to draw near to those far from God. Even us. And to restore. Our right response ought to be just like the hymn, Joy to the World. I know it feels like a Christmas hymn, but it's not. Joy to the world. Why? The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Listen to this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Why? He came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That's what Jesus has done for you and I. Cursed, lepers, unclean, far from God. He came to make his blessings flow as far as that curse is found. And bring you near. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. We praise you for your goodness shown to us, undeserving lepers though we are. I pray that you would help us never lose sight of that. I pray that it would be a driving force, not to somehow deserve what you have done or pay you back. But because we want to be like you. I thank you for the privilege of participating. 
in the work you are doing in bringing this new creation to bear? Would you help us hold these realities in our hearts as we come to your table? And would you fill us with joy and renewed strength to follow you? Amen.